How encouraging was that, hey? I love that. It's um, fantastic. And um, to be involved in a uh, mission like that, to gain some experience, but it's not just experience. It's not like you're going training. You're actually in there, in amongst it, doing it uh, too. So I'm excited to um, come and speak uh, this morning. It's been a real wrestle and a struggle to to know what it is that God wants me to speak about this morning, but um, I've been highly, highly challenged, as we usually are uh, when, we, when we speak, as uh, most people who do speak, um, it happens to them. But what I want to do first, I've, I've actually whacked some NIVs around the place because that's the version I'm going to be using this morning, but before we get to our passage, which starts at uh, Acts chapter 1 and verse 12, some, some of you might go there and we'll get to there eventually, I actually want to give you a quick summary, it sounds a bit weird, but a quick summary of Luke 24. Because uh, I think Luke 24 actually leads us beautifully to where we're going uh, today. Uh, Luke wrote, obviously, the Gospel of Luke, and his uh, sequel was Acts, and we're going to get to that uh, shortly. But before we do, just for those who weren't here, maybe when we were doing Luke, or even last week, this gives us a bit of a run-in uh, to where we're heading off uh, today. So you don't need to read Luke 24, I'm just going to quickly tell you how it went. So we start uh, with the resurrection of Jesus, and we see the, the women going down to the tomb with the spices, and when they get there... They see that the tombs open and they go inside and Jesus is not there. And they're confronted by these two angels who say, why are you looking for the living in the place of the dead? And so they all head back to where the disciples are and they tell them and the disciples are really, really unsure. And so Peter goes heading down there and when he sees the open tomb, he runs right in and he sees these strips of linen that are sitting there by himself. And the Bible tells us that he wondered to himself what happened. Now, this is really unusual in many respects because we know that in the Gospels we read that Jesus often told them exactly what was going to happen to him. He told them that he was going to suffer. He told them that he was going to be crucified. He told them that he would rise again. And yet somehow it had been hidden from them and they hadn't quite gathered what was going on. On the same day that this is going on, we see two men on their way to a little village called Emmaus, which I think is about 7 k's out of Jerusalem. And as they're walking along, Jesus comes and walks alongside them, but they are kept from recognising who he is. And Jesus asks them what they're talking about, and they look at him a little bit strange, a little bit sadly, and say, man, you must be the only visitor to Jerusalem that hasn't known what's been going on in these last few days. And so ironically, they start to proceed to tell him about Jesus of Nazareth, a prophet who was powerful in word and deed from God, handed over by their own chief priests and rulers to be sentenced to death and then crucified. And the other thing they tell Jesus is, we were really hoping that this was the guy that was going to redeem Israel. And what they're saying there is really from Roman rule. And then they said it even gets a little bit stranger because this morning it's the third day since this all happened and the women went down to the tomb this morning. When they came back, they told us that the tomb was open, the body was gone and that an angel told us that Jesus was alive. And then Jesus turns to these two men and he says, how foolish you are and how slow of heart to believe that the, what the prophets have spoken. And so then, beginning with Moses and the prophets, Jesus starts to explain to them what the scriptures say about him. And it's getting on to evening uh, by the time he finishes, and so they coax him to go to their house, and when he sits down, he breaks the bread and gives thanks. Suddenly, their eyes are open and they realise who this is. And at that very moment, Jesus disappears from their sight. And excited about what's going on, they head back up the road to Jerusalem, another seven days, seven days, no, not that long, seven Ks will probably do it, And when they get there, they find the disciples and the others and they tell them, they start telling them that Jesus is alive and they've they've seen him. And while this is all going on, Jesus actually comes and stands amongst them and says, peace be with you. 
which did not bring any peace at all. They were absolutely startled, they were frightened, they were scared, they thought that they were seeing a ghost. And so Jesus said, don't be scared, don't doubt, look at my hands, look at my feet. But they're still concerned, although some joy starts to come as well. And this time he says, is there something I can eat? And they give him a piece of broiled fish and he eats that and they realise that it's him. Then in verse 44 in Luke uh, and 24 it says, This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets and the Psalms. And this next verse is very important for both these men but also for us as well when it says, Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. He told them, this is what is written, that Christ will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day and repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. I'm going to send you what my father has promised, but stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. And when he had led them out to the vicinity of Bethany, he lifted up his hands and he blessed them. So they're now standing on um, the Mount of Olives when this happens. Now we can turn to Acts chapter 1 and just uh, beginning at verse 9, there are a couple of verses. After he said these things, he was taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hid them from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going. Just by the way, I think I would have been as well. Imagine this. We just read it sometimes, don't we? But Jesus disappeared from their sight into a cloud. So they're looking intently. And and while this was going on, two men dressed in white stood beside them, obviously angels. Men of Galilee. Remember that word. Keep that word in the back of your mind, Galilee. Men of Galilee, they said. Why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. Praise God for that because they're talking about the second coming right here. But there's still a lot of work for these men to do and there's still a lot of work for us to do before that happens. So we'd arrive at today's passage, verse 12. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day walk from the city. A Sabbath day walk, I wonder what that was, so I looked it up. Apparently on the Sabbath day you were only allowed to walk about 1,100 metres, about two-thirds of a mile. And fortunately the Mount of Olives is only about that far from the city, so they are able to make it back okay. The Mount of Olives itself is actually quite interesting. This is a photo that Nathan uh, took when he was there uh, fairly recently. Uh, It's got a lot of history to it. It was on the Mount of Olives that Jesus stood at the top and he wept over Jerusalem. It's also the Mount of Olives where at the foot of that, where the Garden of Gethsemane is, that on the night that he was betrayed, that he prayed there. And also we, we read that he sweat drops of blood. And going right back in time, King David actually fled over the top of the Mount of Olives while his son Absalom in Jerusalem was causing a bit of a, a stir too. But it's interesting also that um, if you look closer, when I looked at it, I thought, oh, it's like a white mountain. But there's a couple of other photos. And as I started looking, you see that there are there's over 150,000 people that have been buried on uh, that hill. Just go to the other one, Shelley, and, and whip through those. So the whole mountain is just full of all these uh, tombs. And the reason for that is that apparently um, the uh, Jews believe that when the Messiah returns, of course they don't believe in Jesus as the Messiah, they're still waiting for the Messiah, but when he returns and the dead are raised, that this is where it will happen first. And so they're all wanting to be buried there. Apparently um, some of the prophets have been buried there. Apparently Absalom has been buried there as well. But they are waiting for this and apparently they're Feet are even all buried, pointing the same way. I don't know if so they all stand up and they're on their way as they go. But this is a very, very holy mountain. 
so I just thought it was interesting, a little history lesson for a minute or so. So they returned to Jerusalem from the hill called Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day walk from the city. When they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. Remember, they'd been told by Jesus to go and wait. Those present were Peter, John, James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, son of Elpheus, and Simon the Zealot and Judas, son of James. Not to be confused with Judas Iscariot who betrayed uh, Jesus. They all join together, so they are united at this stage. It would have been an interesting time, wouldn't it? Uh, being in that room and waiting and wondering what was going to happen. They've been told that the Holy Spirit is going to come. So uh, they join together constantly in prayer along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus. This is the last time we hear about her in the Bible. And with his brothers. And this is good news because Jesus' brothers, as we found out in John 7 verse 5, when Jesus was here during his ministry, they actually didn't believe in him. They did not believe who he was. But after the resurrection, obviously, uh, this has changed. In fact, it tells us in the Bible too, during those 40 days when Jesus appeared to people after his resurrection, that he appeared to his brother James too. So uh, this is a, a wonderful news. Verse 15, if you're following me. In those days, Peter stood up among the believers, a group numbering about 120. I think this is lovely too. This is Peter who said, Jesus, I will stay with you. I will die with you. And Jesus told him straight out, you're going to deny me three times. And when that cock crowed, Peter was devastated, obviously. And then when Jesus was crucified, he was a broken man. But beautifully, we read also in that period of 40 days when Jesus is appearing to many people that he appears to the fishermen. In fact, he helps them catch about 153 fishes, I remember. And Peter is on the shore there and and, uh, Jesus eats fish with him. And at that point, Jesus reinstates Peter in such a beautiful, beautiful way, showing his grace and his mercy. And Peter, of course, goes on to be a real rock within the church. But not only that, uh, finishes up dying uh, for the cause of Christ. So, he he stands up amongst the believers, a group numbering about 120, we're verse 16 now, and said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke long ago through the mouth of David, concerning Judas, who served as a guide for those who arrested Jesus. He was one of our number and shared in this ministry. A couple of things there. Remember in Luke 24, that Jesus opened up their minds so they could understand the scripture. That's actually what's going on right here. I love this. Remember before, they didn't quite get what was going on. All through the Gospels, they didn't quite understand. But now he's opened their minds so they can understand. So when he says, brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke long ago through the mouth of David. And this is prophecy we're about to hear here. The other bit I got out of that too, it's interesting uh, when they say, they're talking about Judas and they said, he was one of our number and shared in his ministry, in this ministry. Isn't it interesting that somebody so close to Jesus, hearing the truth the whole time, yet was destructive? It's a bit of a warning to us, isn't it? Even within leadership of church that we must watch to see those who are involved in the ministry that they are actually spirit-filled Christians that love the Lord and are serving alongside here. Not that Jesus didn't know what was going on, obviously, but it is a warning to us. With the reward he got for his wickedness, Judas brought a field and then he fell headlong, his body burst open, all his intestines spilled out, yuckety yuck, yuck, yuck. Uh, horrendous stuff. We read in another account and some people get a bit confused about this and I certainly was where it says that Judas hanged himself and they said oh it's contradicting itself. 
Well, the best that I can get here is, I read something, I thought, yeah, that sort of makes sense, because I have no doubt believing this, because I know God's word is true. But the reality is what may have happened is that when he was hung, a branch may have broken, or as they took him down, he's fallen and obviously landed on a rock or something and his body has uh, burst open. I have no problem uh, believing uh, the, the scripture when it comes to these things. Everyone in Jerusalem, verse 19, everyone in Jerusalem heard about this, so they called that field in their language, Ekeldama, that is, field of blood. For, said Peter, and here he goes again, the scripture's opening up to him, it is written in the book of Psalms, and here he's quoting from Psalm 69, may his place be deserted, let there be no one to dwell in it. And there wasn't. Apparently later on it became a, a burial ground for those who were not Jews. And then Peter goes on, and this time he's quoting from uh, Psalm 109. Again, this is uh, prophecy. It says, and may another take his place of leadership. So Peter's putting two and two together, and it's coming up IV, four in Roman numerals. I think that's what it is, isn't it? I heard that on some joke at some stage. That's right. No, don't worry about that. So he's putting two and two together now with the scriptures, and he's saying another must take his place of leadership. So what happens here? Okay, let's have a church meeting. Here's the first one. So in verse 21, it tells us, he says, Therefore, it is necessary to choose one of the men who has been with us the whole time the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning with John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken up from us. Uh, For one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So the criteria has been set here. They've got to find somebody who's seen all these things, who's actually a witness to this, particularly, obviously, with the resurrection so that they can proclaim uh, what has happened here. So they proposed two men, Joseph called Barsabas, also known as Justice, and a guy called Matthias. So obviously both of these guys had that criteria. They'd been here all this time. But who do we choose? How do we work that out? Then, what does it say? Somebody read it out to me. What's the next words? Then they prayed. Lord, you know everyone's heart. Show us which of these two you have chosen to take over this apostolic ministry which Judas left to go where he belongs. Then they cast lots and the lot fell to Matthias so he was added to the 11 apostles. What did they just say? What did they just say? They cast lots? What do they do? Throw a coin in the air to go, you want Caesar or tails sort of thing too. I don't know, this is a little bit strange. It seems strange that they're picking somebody to add to the 11 to come back to the 12, which actually lines up with the 12 tribes of Israel, obviously, which is interesting. But how they, what's with this? But when we go to Proverbs, it's actually interesting. In Proverbs 16.33, it says, The lot is cast into the lap, but every decision is from the Lord. This is what was actually a rigid way of doing this in Old Testament times. They would do these things... I don't know he's quite sure how the lots were cast or what they did, but they would inquire of God and then they would do something like this and then the person or the action uh, would be taken. And when you think about it, it's actually not a bad example of when we're unsure of some sort of decision we need to make. You ever been there before? You've got this one, this one. They, they, they both seem okay because Matthias was okay and the other guy was okay too. So what, what do we do there? So I think taking the example here, to line things up, if you're in the situation right now, or you have been before, you'll, you'll recognise this, to line things up with the Bible, examine the alternatives, really honestly, not with, well, I'm really thinking that way, so I'm going to push that way a little bit. No, be honest with God, then pray for wisdom and guidance to reach a wise decision, and then, ready for this? Make a decision. Make a decision. And then allow God to open the way or to close it. 
Sometimes we get so stuck, don't we? Because we don't know which way to go. And, and I've been work, trying to work this out for 15 years. And God's going, come on, come on, come on, make a decision. Because if, if it's within the bounds of what's correct and what's biblical, it's okay to, to step forward too. Sometimes it's really specific, sometimes it's not. Is there anybody who's been that decision be- in that decision-making process before? Yeah, I see those hands, sisters and brothers. Yeah, okay, there's more of them coming. Yeah, well, come on. It's interesting, isn't it? And so we had this process. I want to just encourage people in that way. I had a similar thing happen myself probably about seven years ago. I was in a business, uh, had been for 15 years, great business, uh, good people, loved the job. But Florina and I came to the point where we thought we need to pray to say, God, do you want me here or do you want me somewhere else? Because I'm going to be happy with whatever you choose for me. So we came before him on a number of days and said, God, if you want me here, I'm happy. I love this job. I'm happy here. If you want me to do something else, uh, would you lead me that way? About a week and a half later, I got called into the office and the president was in tears, the HR lady was in tears and I knew something was wrong and then they told me that I had just been made redundant by the US and could not work out why I had a crinkly smile on my face because we presented this to God and so I had so much confidence in this is where he's leading me. Now, I know that that's fairly clear. That was pretty clear and God's got to be pretty obvious with me. I tell you, all my life he's had to be pretty obvious with me because I ain't that smart. But here's the deal. Pray honestly. Give it to God, make a decision, and then let him deal with the result to either close the way or open the way up for you. It's really neat to do that. Don't be scared to do that. Don't be frozen in your life. One of the other things is to inquire of other people, to ask for their counsel as well, people that you trust who you know are godly. Verse 26, Then they cast lots, and the lot fell to Matthias, so he was added to the eleven... What's the word? What's the word that comes? The 11 what? Apostles. Apostles, yeah. Suddenly the word's just changed, hasn't it? We're not talking disciples anymore. All of a sudden it's changed to uh, apostles. The disciple means it's got like a, an educational context to it, hasn't it? Like being a, a learner, uh, a follower. And certainly while Jesus was doing his ministry here, he had his followers and those who he was teaching along the way. In fact, in those days, lots of rabbis had disciples and the disciples would follow and the rabbis would teach uh, probably a little bit differently than Jesus was, but that was a, a normal practice. But apostle, that's a whole new word that's coming uh, now as Jesus has chosen these 12 apostles. It comes from a Greek word, apostolos, which means sent forth from God, basically on a mission, an apostle. And this is why Jesus chose these 12 men. They now had a special assignment of spreading the good news of Jesus, death and resurrection, but also to talk about repentance and forgiveness of sin. Jesus chose these apostles out of a wider range of disciples. So now we come to what I consider to be probably the key moment in the whole of the New Testament. We're about to see the birth of the church and uh, I know you've read this before and I've read it many times before but I tell you when you read it over and over again and start looking at it, this is amazing stuff. So let's see what this has got, what it means here but what it also means the coming of the Holy Spirit for us as well. Let's read from chapter 2. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place, as they had been asked to do, as we remember. Pentecost, uh, actually the word means 50. Uh, Pentecost was a feast. It was actually called the Feast of Weeks. and um, It was 50 days after the Passover. So you've had all these Jews coming in for these uh, feasts. Uh, And so this particular feast was like the giving of the first fruits. So it's like a harvest festival. 
Uh, if you had grown things in that too, you were coming and offering those first things uh, to God. So when the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. This roaring sound of the wind and the tongues of fire were signs of the presence and power of God. What an amazing moment that would have been to be in that room. It's incredible. Jesus himself actually would use um, the idea of wind uh, when he spoke, often about the Holy Spirit, and that would come up in other times in the Old Testament too. One time was when he was speaking to Nicodemus, and he said to him, the wind blows where it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. And fire, of course, was used too. And fire is a bit of a theme through the Bible in regards to purification, but also being led because, of course, we had um, uh, the children of Israel being led through the wilderness by a pillar of fire and Moses uh, being spoken to at a burning bush uh, too. So that all uh, sort of makes some sense in there, doesn't it? Then we get to all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit. And this is important because the Holy Spirit has never been different. It's never changed, but now... Things are a little different. Up to this point in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit would come upon people or would come into certain situations, but then it would leave again. So the Holy Spirit would be sent, then it would be drawn uh, back again. And this is the difference between what's going on because now these men have been filled with the Holy Spirit and this Holy Spirit will not leave them ever. And this is great news for us too, and I'm going to get to that a little bit further on. With the Holy Spirit in the old, old days, in the old days of the Old Testament, I know Saul had the, had the Holy Spirit come upon him, but then it was taken from him. We had Samson at one stage, so he could push some pillars down and have the building collapse on God's enemy, given that strength by the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit would come and go, be sent for specific reasons. But now we see these men being filled with the Holy Spirit, and this is a whole new era that has begun. And they began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. This was not gobbledygook. These were real languages. This is amazing. How weird would that be? They're opening their mouths and suddenly they're speaking Mesopotamian or whatever it is. I don't know what the, the, the actual language names is. But suddenly they're speaking what they think is just speak, but it's coming out in all these different languages. This is an amazing moment. And we're going to get to some incredible timing here in a minute. I want to take note of We're down to verse 5 here. Now, there were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. Now, I've got a map uh, here uh, that you'll be able to see uh, in a moment. And it shows where all these men uh, came from. I'll leave it up there for a little bit. It might be a little bit hard to see with that light, but that's okay. So uh, they were Jews from every nation under heaven. And when they heard this sound, the sound of all this would have sounded a bit like babbling, really, wouldn't it? A crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard them speaking in his own language. How weird is that? There's all these languages going on at once. Everybody's going, what is going on? Utterly amazed, they asked, this is a classic, are not all these men who are speaking um, Galileans? Remember I said remember that word before? Let me tell you a little bit about Galileans. Galileans lived in the most rural area of northern Israel and they spoke with this pretty distinct country sort of an accent, I suppose, if you're living in that uh, time of the world. And they were considered unsophisticated and uneducated by the southern Judean Jews who were very educated and very learned and very scholarly. And so no wonder they were surprised. They're now looking at a bunch of Galileans 
and hearing him speaking in other languages? What's going on here? Then, how is it that each of us hears them in his own native language? Uh, Parthians, Medes and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, uh, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, uh, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, that's right up in Italy, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Wow. But how's the timing of this? Think about this. Because of the festivals, all of these people from all of these places have all come into Jerusalem and they're hearing the word of God, they're hearing the wonders of God and guess what's about to happen? They're about to go home. And guess what they're going to take with them as well? And we'll hear a little bit more about that when Paul speaks about uh, Peter speaking and the response to them. But the timing is amazing here. So... Uh, they, uh, they're declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed. There they are again. Amazed and perplexed. They ask one another, what, what does this mean? And just by the way, that's a great question. What does this mean? Here's all these God-fearing Jews. They're hearing the wonders of God. They're seeing that they're Galileans. And they're saying, what does this mean? They didn't say, whoa. They said, what does this actually mean? It must mean something. Is that what you do when you hear truths from God? Or when you hear, are you wanting to know what is this about? Or are you going to have the second response? Look at the next verse. Some, however, made fun of them and said, they've had too much wine. Now think about that. These Galileans have just walked out and they're speaking in I don't know how many different languages and somebody says, oh, they've had too much wine. Please, I'm not a drinker, but if you can find me some wine that will help me speak fluent German, I'm even going to start. Wine. I mean, how crazy is that? What does it tell us? It tells us that their hearts are actually hardened in the first place. That's a crazy thing to say. And again, Paul uh, will follow further with that. So there it is, the coming of the Holy Spirit. And I sort of, it's like the Tower of Babel in reverse. Remember the Tower of Babel? Back in Genesis 11, there's a, the, the people of the earth, which there's not as many, obviously, at this stage, they're moving out to the east, and they finally get to this spot. There's only one language at the time. And when they get, they start saying, why don't we build a city here, and then we'll build a tower that goes all the way up to heaven as a monument to ourselves. And God's going, this is not what's meant to happen. He wants them to spread out over the earth. But they got this idea that they're going to build a monument to himself, they're going to settle there so that they won't be scattered. So what does God do? He confuses their language. And all of a sudden they're looking at each other and nobody can understand anything that anybody else is talking about. So what happens? It's so crazy. There's fights break out, all sorts of things, and the next thing they're scattered all over the earth. But in reverse, what's happened here? The men that have come from all over the earth are hearing about the wonders of God in their own language and guess what's about to happen? They're about to go back out not confused, but actually taking with them the word of God and the message of Jesus. Isn't that interesting? God made his presence known to uh, this group of believers in a very, very spectacular and supernatural way with the, the roaring of the sound of wind, with tongues of fire resting on each of them, giving them ability to speak in languages that they didn't know that they could speak so that they could proclaim the wonders of God. And it would be wonderful, wouldn't it, if every time we had a convert to Jesus, 
Yet there were tongues of fire and a, a roaring wind and we were able to speak in other languages so people could hear things. But can I tell you, it's probably not going to happen. And in fact, next week when Paul speaks and we find of the, the 3,000 that are added to their number that day, it didn't happen for them either. There were no tongues of fire. There was no roaring wind. You know why? Get this. The simple simplicity and the wonderful reality is that when we accept Jesus and repent of our sin, we receive forgiveness and at that very point we receive the Holy Spirit. No tongues of fire, no roaring wind, but a promise that we receive the Holy Spirit. And this Holy Spirit will never, ever leave us. It's not being put on us for a time. It's now indwelling us as we believe in Jesus. In fact, the Bible tells us that God seals us, gets that wax thing out, seals us with his Holy Spirit. He'll never let us go. We belong to him. We are not told in God's word By the sound of a roaring wind and the appearance of tongues of fire, the Spirit will come and live in us and then we are saved. Doesn't say that, does it? This was a supernatural event and it announced the birth of the church in a most wonderful, wonderful way. And wouldn't you have loved to have been there on that day? What a remarkable thing that would have been. But God does tell us very, very clearly in his word these things. Ephesians 2.8, these are well-known verses. How do we get saved? Why are we saved? By grace. You are saved through faith. No roaring wind, no tongues of fire, not necessary. By grace. What Jesus has done at the cross in being a sacrifice for us to save us from our sin to appease the wrath of God so that we can have fellowship with him, we are saved by the grace that he has given us. Nothing that we can do. Nothing at all. If you are searching and looking for something to do to please God, give up. By grace we are saved through faith. And where did that faith come from? Even the faith comes from God. He gives us the faith to believe in him and what a blessing that is. 1 John 1, nine. we know this one too. If we confess our sins. We all know we're sinners. We know we do stuff wrong. We know we don't please God. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all the garbage, from all the unrighteousness, all the ungodliness that we have. He cleanses us from that. Nobody else can do that. What wonderful news this is. And then in Acts 2.38, and you'll hear this next week too, repent and be baptised, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the Holy Spirit. Not we'll think about that later on. When you believe in Jesus, you receive the Holy Spirit. When we believe in Jesus, we receive the same Holy Spirit that came and filled those apostles at Pentecost. It's the same Holy Spirit. The same one. No different. No changes. No updates. The same Holy Spirit that turned frightened and confused men into bold ambassadors for Jesus for the rest of their lives. And most of them died because of their faith. The same Holy Spirit that gave the apostles words to speak in times of great danger and difficulty. Hmm. So for those of us who belong to Jesus and therefore have the Holy Spirit 
living in us. And my prayer is and has been for the last few days too that over these next week as we look at the book of Acts together that you will be really challenged about some of the things that I have really been challenged about. Honestly, big time. Things like, am I walking each day recognising that I am a spirit-filled child of God? I think sometimes we just walk. But imagine if you wake up and you say, I'm told that my body is the temple of God and he dwells that with his Holy Spirit. You are walking around with God in your life, ready and able uh, to have you work in his service. Another thing, am I alive to the Spirit or am I trying to do things on my own? If God lives in me and if his Spirit lives in me, I mean, it's amazing. We're talking about the eternal God who created everything and he's living in me by his Holy Spirit. And as a Christian, I don't think I'm alive to that enough. Are you? I wonder. And when I witness to others, do I do it in the power of the Spirit? My oh God, I can't do this. Can you give me the words so that I can um, explain well to this person that they might hear you? Or do we go and talk to them because we've got some clever things that we can say and some great arguments, which, by the way, might are terrible anyway. We must rely on the Holy Spirit of God. It's a lot different these days, isn't it, for followers of Jesus? No. It's not at all, is it? The culture's changed, the times have changed, even technology's changed. But you know what? The message is the same. The need for salvation is the same. The need for repentance and forgiveness is the same. It's the same as when these guys received the Holy Spirit and that was their job, to go out and be witnesses. The need to, for us to be witnesses to these things in the power of the Holy Spirit is the same because people need Jesus. You need Jesus. I need Jesus every moment of my day. And if you don't think that you have the skills and ability to be witnesses to the gospel, my Galilean friends, I'll let me tell you, you're right. You actually don't have those skills. But the Spirit of God that lives within you has everything you need to be able to do these things. It's the Holy Spirit that gives us courage, the desire and the words to speak out. And we can only do these things effectively in the power of the Spirit that enables us to do that. Can I remind you and encourage you to be aware when you are praying, remember that the Holy Spirit lives in you. If you belong to Jesus, if you have repented of your sin, It's been forgiven and now you are a new creature in Christ and this is just the greatest news we can hear. And so as we uh, come into the rest of our series, can we be aware of that together? I'm hoping that some of you even this morning go, wow, I knew that but I haven't really thought through that. That's my hand. My hand's been doing this and getting higher every day as I realise more that we are spirit-filled and we need to be spirit-led as well. Let's pray. Thank you, our Father, for your word and thank you that you reveal truth in it by your Holy Spirit that lives in us. Lord, would you waken us to your Holy Spirit that you've given to us and forgive us when we don't acknowledge the works of the Spirit in our life. Would you help us to run by your side in your plan rather than to run ahead with our own ideas and in our own strength. Thank you, God, for not leaving us alone until you come again but sending your Spirit that lives in us. Thank you, Lord, that we belong to you, that you have sealed us with your Holy Spirit and that you will never, ever, ever let us go. Father, that we might make Christ known, 
being transformed by your spirit for his glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.